You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Folks, my guest today is Rich Velodas. Rich is the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship in New York City. New Life is an iconic church because of its iconic founding and former lead pastor, Pete Scazzaro. Uh, You may have heard of Pete or you may be very familiar with Pete, but he really created this whole field uh, that my work is simply a a small drop in the ocean, uh, largely built by Pete. He created the Emotionally Healthy series. Whether you're a Christian or whether you are a church leader, there really is no better resource out there than Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and emotionally healthy leadership. And I was really keen to interview Rich because Rich transitioned into the lead role from Pete seven years ago. Rich was 33 when he transitioned, he's 40 now. And Rich is now the lead pastor, uh, very steeped in family systems theory. And I just thought it'd be fascinating to hear his own knowledge of systems theory, what transition was like, particularly when you're following an iconic leader. Now, this turned out, I'll be, I'll be honest, this turned out to be one of my all-time favorite interviews um, because Rich is obviously a systems expert. He can speak very clearly on topics. We get into genograms. We get into differentiation. Rich explains differentiation in a way I've never heard it explained before that I personally found really helpful. Also, Rich is obviously a gifted communicator, and so his ability to help us grasp some of these concepts. But as you're going to hear on this show, he's also profoundly self-aware and very willing to be vulnerable. And I just came away really grateful for what Rich had to teach us. I began by just asking him his first foray into systems theory, when he was first exposed to it, and what first intrigued him about it. So Rich, obviously you are a, uh, a family systems guy. Uh, how did you first get interested in, in family systems theory? I first got interested in family systems when I came to New Life Fellowship Church in 2008 as a, an assistant pastor. And uh, the pastor at the time, my predecessor, Pete Scazzaro, uh, did his doctorate in um, family systems theory with a focus on the genogram. And so everything uh, is seen through the lens of family systems at New Life. And so when I got here, I immediately was told I must do a genogram, uh, although I had done genogram in seminary. Uh, the level of um, intensity and and just time with me, pastoral time with me was really great. And so from that point on, I was intrigued uh, with family systems. But it wasn't really until uh, three, four years ago where I really took a much deeper dive into uh, Bowen Theory and Ed Friedman and all the other folks who have written about it. But for the past 12 years, I was introduced 12 years ago, but the last, uh, you know, four years or so, I've been really diving in deeper. Yeah. Okay. And let's just go back to that 12 years ago. It's, it's, it's funny to me to hear, it's a very common story when there's a leader who's a systems fanatic, <laughs> uh, they, they kind of infect the whole, their whole system with yes. systems. So this is your first pastor at where you're, you're doing a genogram. What was your initial impression? My initial impression was, um, why are we doing this in church? Uh, <laughs> you know, um, this is getting really personal. Uh, am I betraying my family? Uh, and so there are a number of thoughts in my mind. Uh, but the 
amazing thing about Pete's leadership was uh, he modeled it first before anything. And so Pete would very freely talk about the limits and dysfunctions and struggles of his own family of origin and would share with, not, um, not in some kind of generic way, but he would share with specificity. And because of his vulnerability, and uh, that kind of freed everyone else to say, yeah, well, my, my family is not all that too, let me share. So that, but initially it's fear, but those fears were quelled because of Pete's vulnerability and willingness to go first. Yeah. Are you willing to share something that you learned through your genogram about the way you show up as a leader? Oh, absolutely. Um, when we, the, the language that we use and language that I have really um, taken whenever I teach genogram materials and such is, um, you know, the genogram is really about, uh, among many things, identifying patterns, uh, trauma, and, and scripts, and um, among other things, certainly. But, you know, what are the repeated patterns from one generation to the next? Uh, what are the, um, the, the, the traumas that have been endured? And, and the, you know, kind of D.W. Winnicott has talked about uh, psychiatrists in the UK in the 50s of trauma being something that was done that should not have been done or something that didn't happen that should have happened. And so um, the genogram helps to locate, you know, what, what are the traumas, what are the patterns, and then what are the internalized scripts, the messages. And when it comes to the internalized scripts and messages, um, there are uh, at least four or five scripts that I have carried with me uh, that have impacted my leadership, one of which being uh, you have to hold all things together. And uh, to give a quick story, uh, that that realization came out of a time where I did my genogram and a story came to mind. Uh, when I was 11 years old, uh, my parents, I'm the eldest of five, and my parents, um, you know, they had twin, twin girls who were 11 years younger than I was. And one day, my father said to my mother, I overheard him speaking, saying, uh, I'm not going to work today, which was not, uh, which is something that happened from time to time uh, in our home. And I overheard that dad didn't want to go to work. And so I thought, I don't want to go to school. I want to hang out with dad. And so um, my mother, who very rarely missed their work, so you can already imagine the tension in our home. And so my mother comes over and says, time to get up for school. I said, I don't want to go to school today. And she just loses it and gives me some choice words, goes over to my father, gives him some choice words, uh, throws the pillow on him. He gets up out of nowhere from his uh, feigning sleep, you know, and uh, throws a pillow back at her. She shoves him. He shoves her on the, on the bed. And my sister, who was probably, you know, seven, eight months, uh, she falls on my sister and my sister begins to uh, cry. And I ran into the room and I hold my sister in my arms with my parents on either side of me. And I'm weeping and uh, begging them to stop. And in that moment, I think something shifted in me. And the image was, um, unless I hold all things together, this family's going to fall apart. And that became the, um, 
the uh, the internalized message, the script that wasn't necessarily handed to me, but it was internalized, which now uh, finds its way in my life as a pastor. And so as a pastor, I'm thinking, whoa, I, I better hold this thing together. Uh, if, if I don't hold this thing together, this church is going to fall apart. So uh, I, am, I have been tempted, and a lot of this has been mitigated because of the culture I came into, although this is still beneath the surface of my own soul, uh, where I better be preaching all the time. Because if I'm not preaching, man, this thing's going to fall apart. I better not rest or Sabbath, because if I don't show up, and so that's one of the ways uh, where uh, the genogram has been helpful for me to identify some scripts. I'll give you one more. I mean, there are about four or five of these here. One more is uh, don't get angry, uh, because for me, my uh, in my home, I never saw anger apart from its uh, destructive force. So it wasn't just anger as, hey, I'm upset. You hurt me. I'm angry about that. And then uh, a conversation is emotionally healthy and such it was anger was a destructive force and uh and so for me that was so internalized and it contributed to what i saw in my family of origin that in my leadership i thought i better not be angry because i only had one lens by which i would see anger and it was if i get angry uh this is going to be a destructive force and so what do i do i lie uh, I don't tell people when I'm angry with them. I lie to staff. I don't, uh, I'm not honest with them about how I really feel about how they're performing in a particular role, even though I'm angry about it. And so again, these are by God's grace and the environment I've been at new life. I have been, um, uh, force is not the right word, but I, I have been strongly encouraged. It's almost as if the, <laughs> the system is going to spit me yeah. out if I don't do it. Uh, and so if yeah. I'm lying all over the place, I am not going to be able to survive in the system. Um, but because I've been strongly encouraged to access those points of anger and then to now process well and in a healthy, mature way. Um, but those are a couple of the ways that uh, my family of origin and the messages that I've internalized have been reflected in my leadership. Yeah, uh, but Rich, that's such a helpful couple of examples you know a lot of my listeners are interested in systems theory but but they haven't done much beyond maybe my podcast for example i think you really gave us a great mm -hmm. gift by getting so tangible because what you're saying is these scripts in your head even though you're very aware of them they still show up yeah. like you've probably been working on this well let's say in yeah. 10 years but under pressure under stress uh it's not as if you're, you've died to them. Yeah, I, I, it's, I am very much aware of these scripts because um, uh, I don't think I'll ever get over them fully. I, I've been so deeply formed by my family of origin, and I believe I'm in the new family of Jesus. I have the spirit of God who changes uh, all things internal. And yet at the same time, there is a residue of my own family of origin that kind of lurks. And when anxiety comes, when conflict arises, um, I can, if I'm not careful, very easily go back to that old self, if you will, that old family of origin, if you will. Um, 
And so it's an ongoing for sure. And certainly the power of it has uh, lessened over the years without question. But I think this is a, a journey I'll be on the rest of my life. Yeah. So the last four years or so, as you've dug deeper into systems theory, obviously Bowen has his eight concepts, but there's other, you know, Jay Haley, um, Greg Bateson, some of these other streams of systems theory. What have you been chasing that really intrigues you? The thing that's been most important for me has been um, the work of differentiation. And, um, you know, I'm sure I'm stealing somebody's definition here, uh, but I've made it my own where differentiation is about remaining close to myself and remaining close to others in times of high anxiety. Easy to do that in low anxiety, uh, to remain, remain close to myself, remain close to others. Uh, but in terms of in, in high in seasons of high anxiety, remaining close to myself and close to others, uh, avoiding what Bowen Friedman, uh, Ronald Richardson has done some good stuff as well on this of, you know, the two extremes of, of fusion or cutoff, um, Ronald Richardson would say on one end of the spectrum is I can't live without you. On the other end of the spectrum is I don't need you. And, uh, and so I have had to work really hard in certain relationships, not to fuse and in certain relationships, not to cut off. And it varies from person to person, depending on who with my wife, with the board chair, uh, with the congregant, um, with a young person, with an old person, my ability to differentiate often uh, teeters back and forth. But I have spent a lot of time over the past few years, um, again, internally wrestling with what does it mean to remain close to myself and remain close to others, self-regulating when anxiety comes, uh, not projecting my own fears and anxieties onto others, um, but remaining in the moment, which is not always easy. But that's been my area of ongoing growth um, over the past few years. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you mentioned differentiation. My experience is it's the most powerful tool in system theory, and it's the most difficult for people to yeah. grasp. Um, is there a movie or a, do you point to a story that can help people understand what it looks like? I think um, when I think of scripture, one of my go-to stories in scripture is uh, with David and Saul when they're about to, um, uh, when Goliath is on the other side of the valley there. And, uh, you know, David comes on the scene and um, what's going on? He asks the questions, what's going on? They say, there's this guy, Goliath, he's insulting us. And then David says, hey, I, I could do something about this. And then Saul says, if you're going to go out, um, you need some armor. And, uh, and so what David does in that moment is he tries on Saul's armor, which is, uh, I think David is really differentiated here because he's honoring Saul. He's remaining, it's a very high anxiety moment for sure. He's on, on many levels. Goliath, his relationship to Saul. Uh, David tries it on. Um, he remains close to Saul. But then after trying it on, he says, this doesn't really fit me. And he has to now differentiate and go in a different direction. And he takes it off and grabs the stones. Now, differentiation, uh, a a, a non-differentiated person, in David's case, would be one of two examples. He could have said, I'll fight with your armor. 
which probably he would have been killed. Uh, and, or he could have said, um, later for you, man, I'm not going to try on any of your armor. I got these stones. Uh, and so both ends are a, a low differentiated person as opposed to how do I stay close to someone and stay close to myself in a time of high anxiety. And so he does the hard work of remaining close to Saul, but then it's equally hard work to take it off. And, um, and uh, I have looked at David's relationship with Saul as an example for me personally. I mean, uh, the, the parallel is not one-to-one here, but in my relationship with Pete, my predecessor, I've had to do the same work of trying on armor when Pete has suggested it and then taking it off when I think this doesn't fit me. Um, so that's one of my go-to stories of differentiation. It's a great example. It's so funny you mentioned Pete. I was thinking as you were sharing that story, I want to ask you, uh, let's first of all acknowledge Pete is not Saul. He's not, in fact, evil going to the witch again door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but Saul's, Saul's, Uh, in that moment, it was, it was, I think it was concern. It was care. Yeah. And so when I think about Pete and Saul in that respect, I think about that good side of Saul which I think that his giving of his armor came out of a good place. Well, and I think what think what gets really fascinating is you are stepping in to the leadership umbrella of an iconic leader. Pete really in many ways created an entire field with Emotionally Healthy with that work. Um, yeah, that that's a fascinating uh, thought of how you have to find your own yeah. way following what's really an, an iconic healthy leader. And it's happened... I've been, I'm in my seventh year now of leading new life. So our transition was in 2013 and I've had to learn many times over the past seven years, what does it mean to differentiate, uh, with Pete? Uh, and, um, I think it's been the past year, um, because I've been doing a lot of this work where I, I think I finally hit a point where, yeah, I, I'm, I don't think we're ever fully differentiated, you know, but I, I have really gone up the scale here in my relationship with Pete um, because I was able to say, you know what, he did it this way, but that's not me. And I'm going to do it a different way. Um, but in my seven years, I think I'm just getting it, honestly. All right, let, let me take a risk with you, Rich, and, and we'll see if this works. What I tend to do with leaders that I'm coaching, so I, I, the risk for me is I don't feel like I'm, it's audacious to suggest I'm in a coaching relationship. I'm I'm hosting you, but I'm fascinated to know what is it that you can do that Pete cannot do that makes you a gift to new life? 
what is it I can do? Um, that, that Pete is unable to do. And it's not against Pete, right? It's not, it's just that you are, you are the gift to new life for this time and place. Um, are we talking like skill sets, gifts? Are we talking? Yeah. Um, I think the difference between Pete and I, and I think Pete would attest to this as well. He, he, he did a podcast himself on this. And so this is not, uh, anything that is not already public. Um, I have more of a passion and I think a gift to, uh, develop and release other people in, in, as leaders, uh, in a local context like this. Now, Pete has mentored, uh, countless people over the years. Uh, but I think the difference between Pete and I is my willingness to train and risk giving people opportunities. I'll give a quick example. Um, when I became the pastor here, I'm 40 years old. I was 33. And, um, I, um, I said, you know what, one of my passions is to train preachers. And I'm going to train preachers, and then I'm going to find opportunities on a Sunday morning to release them. Uh, and New Life, just to give some context, New Life, um, uh, a very large church. Um, you know, if uh, you know anywhere between 1,800 to 2,000 people who are part of our congregation. So to give someone an opportunity to preach is not a small thing. It's not you know it's it's a it's it's a significant thing in our context here. And um, I remember Pete having some anxiety about, Rich, be careful who you give the pulpit to. Um, and uh, well, for me, I'm thinking, of course, I'm going to do the work of training. Uh, but I just had a passion to identify gifts in others and release it. Whereas Pete, um, and he would attest to this, he just didn't have that same uh, approach um, and, um, later in his, uh, pastoral career at new life, he started doing that with having, you know, bringing on a preaching team. I just started doing that at the beginning of my tenure as the lead pastor here. So, um, I think that's one example. Um, I think another example, the difference between Pete and I, um, I tend to be, um, uh, Gosh, I hope this doesn't sound uh, uh, I, my my personality, I think, um, is not that I'm a non-anxious presence all the time. Uh, so I don't want to I don't want to put that out there like, hey, I'm, I'm like walking on water here and all that. Um, but I but I think my personality is such where I I, I can bring out a non-anxious presence. Um, not that Pete has not done that. So I don't want to communicate that. But I think my personality for the complexities of things um is a little different uh, than what Pete brought to the table. Um, and so that's just a couple of things that, that comes to mind. Yeah, the reason I appreciate you being willing to go there is because um, I, I think when people have been doing this kind of work for a long time, like Pete, he, he's such an iconic yeah. person. Uh, students can misunderstand and think that the teacher is no longer stuck in their own yeah. system. And, and like, I, I know I, I teach this class at our church and I keep trying to tell our students, I'm not Yoda. I get anxious every day. Yes. You know, I make mistakes every day. And really the gift I hope that I've given, I really, just like you've offered us, it would take, my students would have to be the ones coming on and saying if this is accurate. 
but in my staff, we're all aware of each other's foibles yes. and we all make space for each other. And so I have people, even though I'm the top of the food chain as the lead pastor, people on my key leadership team coming to me and saying, Hey, you did yeah. it again. Like, like you were presenting and someone asked two questions and you doubled down on them mm -hmm. again. And they're not giving me that in a threatening way. They're not frustrated. They really are giving me a gift. But I do think that's why I really am grateful for what you just offered us. I think we can believe that somehow you eventually graduate into some kind of a Yoda-like mm. state. Yeah, uh, I think, are you saying we graduate into a Yoda-like state, you're saying? Oh, no. No, I'm saying no, we no, never no. do. We're, I, I, always, we're always part of the system. We always infect no, the system. No, without, with, without question. And um, I'm aware of my uh, shadow side, and by God's grace, much like your staff, uh, because this is the environment that we've had. I mean, I, the healthiest congregations, I think, are, are those that at the, 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 the leaders congregation has done the work of family of origin, uh, coming to terms with what they've inherited. I think those are the healthiest uh, communities. And by God's grace, uh, I may be honest here. I mean, my assistant came in a couple of weeks ago. And said, hey, Rich, there are a couple of things that I've noticed uh, in our interaction. And I was able to go, oh, tell, tell me more about it. And part of me is I'm, I'm already getting a little defensive. I'm already listening, you know. And then she shares it and I go, oh, yeah, I could totally see that. And I'm thinking, wow, she just gave me a gift. Uh, now, again, uh, apart from an overarching culture, it's hard to receive that as a gift, which I think just to circle back to Pete, Pete, the reason why... Uh, new life is what it is and continues to be a place marked by this is because he made an important differentiating decision to say, we're going to do things differently here. And I think we're reaping just the, the benefits and harvesting the fruit of his work that he did in the mid nineties. So, um, but we never get to a Yoda like phase. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I might talk backwards from time to time, but uh, other than that, that's not it. <laughs> you don't seem to have hair growing out of your ears, at least as far as I can tell. You know, I, I think um, one of the truths that I think is true about family system theory is um, the power of health to infect ill health. I think this is a side of the mm. gospel that systems theory brings. And that's what you're describing is Pete came in, he, he went through some bumps himself. He then <sighs> fought for another way. And now he's infecting this culture. Yeah. And now you're infecting the culture. With health. It's yeah, amazing. It's really wonderful. It is. Okay. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about uh, concepts of family systems theory that, in your opinion, uh, people struggle to understand the most. What What would be one or two that you find people really struggling to get their mind around? Um, back to the genogram, I think uh, in my work with people, whether at New Life and some of the conferences we've done here or any seminars that I've led, uh, on family systems or genogram, uh, there is uh, a lot of people have a hard time uh, looking back at their family of origin, and there's either uh, they're either either overwhelmed by negative views of their family, or um, over idealized views of their family, and uh, and on both extremes there, it's really hard to have some form of non-anxious objective. Um, perspective to now discern where are the places that I need healing, where are the places where I need uh, a new way forward. 
And so I, I have talked to people who, when I'm work talk, hey, tell me about your family of origin. Uh, they say, oh, it was great. Fantastic. No, no problems ever. Uh, and, uh, and I'm like, really nothing, huh? And, and so I've had to go down that road with them. And then there's others who uh, have refused to see any positive legacies. And I know there's certain family environments where it was horrific and awful. Um, but for most people, I think there were some, what are the positive legacies you've inherited? And to counter a little bit of the negativity and emotionality that's connected to looking at your history. So that's one thing. And then, I mean, uh, as you mentioned with differentiation being kind of the uh, primary or maybe most important fruit of family systems, uh, with regard to differentiation, I think people um, uh, really don't understand differentiation because in a individualistic, I'm going to speak my mind kind of world, I'm going to say whatever I want to say, you can't control me, uh, kind of a world. People think differentiation is uh, exactly that. I'm going to speak my mind. I'm a prophet. I'm going to speak truth to power and fail to see that differentiation is not just about um, remaining close to yourself and whatever values you have, but is about remaining close to others as well. And so how do we hold on to those dynamics and those tensions of I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. I, I want to remain close to people. Um, Jesus remained close to people. And I want to remain close to myself and not live from uh, 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 my own false self or um, a self that I think you want me to have. Uh, and so I think those are the two things that come to mind in terms of the ways we see our families and the misunderstanding we have about differentiation. Yeah, that's really, that's so good. You know, Murray Bowen, to my knowledge, was not a man of faith, at least when he was building Family Systems Series. Some people say that, you know, he created the ninth concept right before he died, uh, kind of the idea of the mm. divine. But um, he talks about differentiation almost like the caste system in India, that whatever you're born into, mm. you you're not really able to differentiate more than, a few points either way, you know, as you know, Rich, I'll, I'll just say for our listeners, Bowen created a hundred point yeah. scale for differentiation. He made the case that if you're born like in the mid thirties, you're, you're, you're only differentiated about 35%. You'll never get plus or minus mm. 10 points based on your family of origin. What's your take on the power of the gospel to build a stronger differentiation in you? Yeah. I, I think the power of the gospel for me, uh, is a couple of things. One is my primary identity is not rooted in um, my perception of myself, uh, others' perceptions of me, uh, because when that's the case, I'm going to now um, live lowly differentiated. Uh, my primary identity, which um, I need to be reminded by in contemplative practices and hearing the gospel proclaimed it, it's it, it's in the love of god and um i think appropriating that applying that to my life receiving that uh, uh puts me in a position now like much like jesus who lives out of that belo belovedness um and so i, I think that the gospel i don't know 
uh, I don't have any empirical data about does the gospel now give you an additional 10 points to Bowen's 10, you know, uh, I don't, I don't have any data there, but I do know that, um, the gospel's power and part of the gospel is the indwelling of the Holy spirit. Um, I do think the indwelling of the Holy spirit and the empowerment of the Holy spirit, uh, provides us with, uh, a greater capacity, um, to grow in differentiation because it's we're living from a different center, from a different core, uh, not from um, our idealized versions of ourselves or um, the negative views that others have of us. It's it's from the constant, um, you know, consistent love of God, and I, I think that I, I think the Spirit of God does something in us. Um, to position us for greater differentiation if we would do the other hard work as well this is this is uh, fear and trembling as well this is uh, we're living out of our uh, discipleship here so it's not i think it's a gift and also it's it's the ongoing work but i think the gospel and the presence of the spirit empowers us to uh, to do those things I think what we'll do now then is we will get going on our gauntlet of anxiety questions that I ask every guest. So um, for you, uh, when do you notice uh, chronic anxiety first showing up? Is it in a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut? Uh, all the above. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think um, my heart races. I'm aware of my heart racing. I'm aware of a, a pit in my stomach. I'm aware of uh, a kind of obsessive projection, um, uh, mind reading, uh, lots of assumptions that I have of others. I know my anxiety is rising to the surface when I am now dominated by the assumptions I believe others have of me. Um, and, um, and that will paralyze me. So I, so I'm a, I'm a mess, uh, Steve, uh, all of the above. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a common answer. People say all of the above. Um, are you able to name where it first begins? Obviously it spreads, but do you know where it first starts? Uh, uh in terms of the situation or in terms of, uh, in terms of physiology, oh. uh, mind, heart or gut? Uh, I think it's my gut first. Like the, I think part of it is, it's, it's kind of like this, the limbic system, you know, it's, it's, it's before my mind catches up, my body already knows what's happening. And so I, I, it, I think it is my gut that I just feel something is wrong. And then my rationality, uh, you know, follows suit hours later or so as I try to make sense of it. But I, I think it's like the pit in my stomach. It's, it's, it's my gut for sure. Okay. It's, it's common for a leader because we are either others focused or we're task focused. Sometimes we're the last to know that we're not okay. Yeah. Um, one of the most humbling things for me is like when my daughter, like when she was like 10, would know that I'm not okay before <laughs> I know I'm not okay. 
Um, who in your life knows that you're not okay before you know? Oh, uh, without question, Rosie's the first one, my wife. Um, and she knows I'm not okay. Um, uh, there's just my disposition changes. Um, she knows when, uh, if I'm angry or, and, you know, often my, my anxiety manifests through anger, um, where I ha- I, my mouth just hangs in a certain way. And she comes into the kitchen, she asks me a question, and my mouth is, you know, open a bit. And she'll go, you're angry. <laughs> and I go, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. How dare you disrespect me like that, you know? Uh, so, <laughs> um, but Rosie, for sure, is the first person uh, who knows it. And then I think secondly is um, the... Uh, the executive team I work with here, there are three folks on the executive team. And um, I, I think they, um, whenever I, f- I get short, uh, whenever I, uh, I think they pick it up and, hey, Rich, are you okay? Uh, so I think those are the uh, two groups of people that um, Rosie and that team there, I think, are the first to know. Great. I think one of the common sources of anxiety for any leader is making a mistake in public. Mm-hmm. It's like all of our mistakes, like leadership's vulnerable and all of our mistakes are generally mm-hmm. in public. Can you give us an example of a mistake you made in public recently and how you recovered from it? Uh, in, in a sense, I think um, uh, because I, I preach so often, I feel like in a given year, um, I make mistakes um, on a regular basis by what I say, what I don't say, how I say it. Um, I remember uh, I have learned, uh, and this comes out of my own um, recognition of mistakes, uh, to, uh, from time to time, in order to get a, a cheap laugh, I'll, I'll say uh, something flippantly. Uh, and I'll give you an example. I remember preaching on race, uh, reconciliation, uh, racism, uh, the gospel's power to break barriers. And at one point, I, I preached one sermon on individual racial prejudice and another sermon on institutional and structural racism. And when I got to the in- institutional and structural racism part, I, um, I was trying to give a, a genogram of the United States, actually. And, um, and I got to a point where I said, um, this is, uh, for those of you who are white here in this congregation, it probably New Life has, I think, maybe 12% of people are white here. Uh, I said, this is not, um, I'm talking about whiteness as an ideology, as a destructive power. I'm not talking about you as white people. But and then I said, so don't email me. It, but it was a flippant kind of like, um, statement and people laughed. I got some cheap laughs out of it. And, um, and then I got a few emails out of that as well, but I just, I just knew. And from time to time, I, because it's often my own anxiety that I feel I need to somehow, uh, get some, uh, uh, quell this and I'm going to use humor as a means to deal with my own anxiety. So I'm going to say something for a cheap laugh. And I just realized that in myself that um, I'm 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 more prone in recent months uh, to note. You know what? Hold on to that flippant joke there because um, it's not worth it. So I think from time to time, I um, uh, as a preacher, 
uh, I make some mistakes. But yeah, I mean, that that's one example that comes to mind in terms of how flippant I can be. Yeah, it's a great example. Um, one of the aspects of systems theory that we don't cover enough is uh, how anxiety spreads in a group. You know, we, we've spent a lot of our time, Rich, talking about your own life. But where have you seen anxiety spread in a group? Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, <laughs> I, I, and our staff, um, y- you know, uh, hey, we're going to do a new initiative. There's a new initiative we're going to do. We're going to go X, Y, we're going to do X, Y, Z. We're going to go this place here. And um, at that point, inevitably, someone will um, uh, anxiously say, uh, hey, what about, what about, what about, what about? And all of the vision and dreams that have been articulated are now subdued a little bit because uh, some anxiety is rising to the surface there. Uh, and, and then others now. Now, I think the key in that, for me, I've learned now I could either go down the road of, uh, let me just quell that, let me just stop that. This is not a time to... To, for the whatabouts, this is this is Holy Spirit vision time, you know, uh, and in this in this proper occasions, uh, not for the whatabouts and us, but but I think on a on a staff level or leadership level, um, whenever there's change, whenever there's the unknown, um, there's going to be some anxiety, and and when people share that anxiety, others say, oh, I wasn't thinking about that, and next thing you know, that anxiety is transferred over a little bit. Uh, so, I mean, I, I see it whenever, whenever any kind of change is made, any new initiative is articulated, um, at least on a leadership level, staff level, it can certainly come to the surface. And I've experienced it coming to the surface. Yeah, and I, I think you're actually modeling for us a great way to lead through the whatabouts. Like you don't actually shut them down, you invite them. And by inviting them, yeah. which I think is counterintuitive for most visionary leaders, you're de-escalating the anxiety yeah. in the room. Yeah, just yet. I mean, two days ago, today's Thursday. Two days ago, we had a staff retreat, <clears throat> and I shared with our staff that in 2021, in the fall, we are um, we're in plans right now, discerning uh, a new congregation, and uh, we haven't. Uh, uh, it'll be kind of more of a multi-site uh, kind of thing, you know, um, not totally multi-site, but we haven't planted a congregation or did something like this since 1993, 1994. So this is very new. And uh, there was one uh, one of our staff who asked some very perceptive questions, but um, but we decided ahead of time that we were going to make space for that, for those questions. And when those questions started coming... And I'm real. Uh, there's now in, in me. Uh, there's a part of me thinking, man, why do you keep asking these questions, man? And there's another part of me thinking, wow, what a gift he's giving us, where uh, yeah. he's articulating what many other people have uh, are holding on to. And in that moment, uh, I can't say I would have done this a couple of years ago, um, but I, I was able to say, great question. I'm not sure of those answers, um, but I think yours are good questions. Do you have any others? And everyone else started chiming in, and it was wonderful. It was great. I'm thinking these are these are questions that the rest of the congregation is going to hold as well. Um, but creating that space uh, for that, and again, I mean, I, I don't want to just harp. I mean, again, I did not create this culture, Steve. I but I think I'm stewarding the culture um, yeah, in, right. in that That's way. Right. So uh, certainly, I, I'm, 
yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I'd say about that. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, the last question, it, it comes from the theory that, um, when we're full of chronic anxiety, it's really difficult for us to be aware of God's presence. I think God can be with us in our anxiety, but our ability to notice God with us, I think is really diminished. It's almost like we're filled with one or the other. So I think one of the most important questions is is simply to ask, when in your life, Rich, do you feel most fully loved? Um, by God or by uh, or just generally uh, people? Yeah, either way. Just on the idea that I don't think you can be uh, filled with the unconditional love and filled with anxiety at the same time. I think perfect love really does cast out chronic anxiety. I feel most loved. Um, there's a question that we ask at New Life from time to time to access some beneath the surface issues. And whenever this question is asked, whether directly in this way or in a different kind of a way, uh, whether it's through my wife, whether it's through um, another pastor in our staff, a friend, it's um, uh, what's impacting you most in this moment and how are you feeling about it? And when that question is asked, whether directly that way or something along those lines, um, I feel really loved. I, I feel um, that I can, I'm able to have the space to access what's really happening in my soul, uh, how I'm feeling about it. And uh, to have a not, uh, I feel loved when the person who's speaking that is a real non-anxious presence with me and they're able to be present and not necessarily to fix or to give advice, but to be a presence with me and uh, pray for me. I mean, I think those are the moments when I feel um, most loved, when my wife um, looks me in the eye and encourages me um, and reminds me of um, uh, who I am in God. I mean, I, I think those those are the moments when I feel most loved, I think. Yeah, that's a beautiful answer. Thank you so much. And on, on that note, we're gonna wrap up, but Rich, um, I think you've given us a real gift. I think your ability to to clarify concepts. Uh, I think you've given us a lot to chew on today. So thanks so much for coming Thank on the show. Thank you for having me. I love the work you're doing and this podcast. So uh, just glad to be on. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 